you say. <laughs> Let's pray for Neil. Lord, we thank you for the word that you've given Neil this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless him as he delivers that word. I pray, Lord, that you would open our ears and that each of us would hear what you want us to hear this morning. That won't be the same for all of us, but I guarantee that there will be something that each of us needs to hear. So open our ears, Lord, and anoint Neil's words as they come from his mouth this morning. Amen. Well, it's lovely to be here this morning. The last two weeks we've been away. Two weeks ago we were in a small... I can't do anything here, Mike, but... Um, is it quiet? Well, hey, that'll teach you. <laughs> okay. Uh, two weeks ago, we were in a small uh, chapel in Sea Houses, and last week we were in a, quite a large uh, high church in St. Andrews. And it's great to be back. I just love being at the King's Church Amersham. And when I look out at all these smiling faces, who could fail to be motivated and excited? Anyway, we're carrying on our series from Proverbs, and uh, my title is Self-Preservation, Guarding Your Heart. And uh, if you want to look it up in your Bible or on your phone or wherever, I'm going to be reading from Proverbs 4, verses 23 to 26. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet. And be steadfast in all your ways. I deliberately haven't listened to the last two sermons. So if I say something that was said last week or the week before, it must be really good because it's been said twice. Um, Our heart dictates how we live. Indeed, if our heart stops beating, then we're not living anymore. And I was terribly sad, but some great memories of my dear friend Goff. I used to run with Goffy when his heart was beating very fast. Um, Solomon counsels us to guard our heart above all else, making sure we concentrate on those desires that will keep us on the straight and narrow. In the Bible, the heart is seen as the seat of our deepest trusts, commitments and loves, the place from which everything flows. So what the heart most loves and trusts, the mind will find reasonable, the emotions find sensible, and the will find desirable. So how do you guard your heart? Well, the heart, as I've just said, is the central mechanism. And I wonder how highly developed your sense of self-preservation is, and how good you are at guarding your heart. Um, I guess the starting point, there were three bits in that passage. The first bit is our mouth, the words that we speak. Secondly, our eyes, the things that we choose to look at and focus upon. And thirdly, our feet, uh, the paths that we walk. And you could argue that what we've just been doing for the last half hour or so is the best way to guard our hearts. We've been worshipping and our mouths, our eyes, and our feet are orientated towards God. That's why worship is so important. If you do an internet search on healthy heart, you'll find all, co- all sorts of stuff on there. And I just found this one on the NHS Healthy Heart. And there's five things that you need to do to stay fit. And I can see lots of you are obviously dedicated fitness freaks. Um, freak, no, that's a bad word. Fitness enthusiasts. 
So the first one is get active. Uh, raise your pulse rate three times a week for 35 minutes. How you do it is entirely up to you. We bought a rebounder, which is like a little trampoline thing. And it's great because it takes all the stress off your back. So you bounce up and down on the rebounder and you get your pulse rate up and you get in a muck sweat and all of that. And, and we're going to start using it soon. <laughs> the, the exercise I've had so far is moving it from one room to another when we get visitors. Uh, second one is manage your weight. Being overweight increases your risk of heart disease. Obesity is now the, a greater risk to health than smoking. And you, what you have to be particularly careful about is being a toffee. I was told last autumn that I'm a toffee, which means thin on the outside but fat on the inside. And that's not a good thing, apparently, visceral fat around your vital organs. So I'm trying to do something about that. Thirdly, eat more fibre. Aim for at least 30 grams a day. Gut health is all the rage. We're very keen on gut health in our house. We've got kefir that we make ourselves. We drink our kefir every morning, which is sour milk stuff. And I'm like a new man when I've had my kefir. And I can't speak for Judith, but it's definitely the case. Get your five a day, at least five portions. Uh, fruit gums are good. Um, no, not really. Fruit and vegetables. And, and lastly, get enough sleep. Uh, I bought a great book by Ariana Huffington. And it's called The Sleep Revolution. And Ariana was saying that most people are sleep deprived. And actually, if you're sleep deprived, it's very dangerous. So one of the things I'm delighted about, on my Fitbit, I can see how much sleep I've had. So every morning, I dutifully look at my Fitbit to see how much sleep I've had. And then I know whether to be tired or not. <laughs> so what are the spiritual equivalents of these healthy heart tips? How do we guard our hearts spiritually? And I guess the best way to guard your heart for wisdom, as I said earlier, is in worship. But if, I think um, the big three, which as a brand new Christian, I was taught about the big three. I've written about this recently. And that's a, a Celtic heart there. And all those things obviously interweave. They're fantastic patterns. I love Celtic patterns. But the big three for us as Christians are one, obviously the word, read the Bible for all it's worth. We're just talking about that at the prayer meeting this morning. The Bible is the greatest book ever written. Um, it's the inspired word of God, so it's impossible to read it too much. Secondly, pray constantly. David affirms in Psalm 145 what we know to be true. God is a righteous and loving Father, and he is near us when we call upon him. And thirdly, spend time in fellowship with other Christians. Because we can often hear what God is saying to us through other people. Sometimes the most unexpected people will say something and you think, yeah, that's got a real resonance for me. That is directly from God. So Solomon suggests we give special attention to our mouth, our eyes, and our feet. So we could see God as the, <laughs> the ultimate dentist, optician, and chiropodist. When I go to have my six-month dental check, which is always an expensive business, Judith's just been this week, actually, the dentist is very thorough, and uh, he does all that thing about poking your tongue with a mirror and checking what's going on underneath your tongue. And uh, I think that's quite a good idea, actually, to have your tongue examined. So that's what I'm inviting you to do this morning. Would you like to examine your tongue and see what, what's coming out of your mouth? When James, the brother of Jesus, was writing to first-century Jewish Christians everywhere, he admonished them to tame their tongue. And this is what he said. Perhaps. Johnny, can you just flip me on one? I'm not quite sure what's happening. 
that's exactly it. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great fire is sorry, a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and itself is set on fire by hell. So taming the tongue is a challenge for all of us, regardless of how old, how young we are. And and part of the challenge really is to say the right thing at the right time, isn't it? (laughs) And also controlling our desire to say things we shouldn't. Sometimes you just have that little temptation. Well, I'd love to just say, no, it's never a good idea. So examples of an untamed tongue include gossiping. Nobody here would gossip, would they? Complaining, bragging, exaggerating, conversational narcissism, which I just discovered a few weeks back, and insensitivity. So let's start with gossip. Do you enjoy a nice, juicy bit of gossip? It is said that gossips spend a lot of time talking about other people. Bores spend a lot of time talking about themselves, and great conversationalists listen to what I'm saying. (laughs) Charles Durber, who's a psychologist, uh, coined the phrase conversational narcissism. And he defines it in the following way. Often subtle and unconscious, conversational narcissism is the desire to do most of the talking, and to turn the focus of the exchange back to yourself. And he identifies two responses. Shift responses, support responses. Shift responses are why when somebody tells you something, you say, do you know, I had exactly the same thing, but it was much more powerful, more interesting, and more expensive. You don't actually use those words, but that's what you're thinking. Whereas support responses, you listen benignly and encourage the other person to speak. A couple of weeks back, well, a month, I guess, Judith and I were up at um, Cliff College on a bereavement ministry uh, week. And one of the saddest bits, in a way, was people were talking, everybody there had been bereaved, and, and the people were talking about the most insensitive things somebody said to them when their loved one had died. One of them was, I can't come to your house anymore because it's just too sad. Or, to a young widow on the unexpected death of her husband when he was 31. Well, never mind. You're young enough to get married again. Or, well, and this is, I think, in a way, the worst of all. Oh, well, you obviously didn't have enough faith that your loved one would be healed. Now, all, I, I'm hoping that they were all positively meant, but they all landed very badly. And, and people felt really sad and passionate about things that had been said to them. So I guess before we speak, it's wise to think what we're saying. Um, Engage the brain before the mouth opens. Some luminary said, words are like eggs dropped from a great height. You can no more call them back or ignore the mess they cause when they hit the ground. So choose your words with care. An err on the side of positivity. We've seen lots of pictures uh, all across Europe of raging fires. Uh, fire officers and the military struggling to bring these blazes under control. And this is the metaphor that James advisedly uses. He compares the damage that the tongue can do to a raging fire. And I guess the tongue has its source in hell itself. The uncontrolled tongue can wreak devastation. And Satan uses the tongue to upset people. I don't know whether you've been following the conservative leadership uh, race 
which is now over, but things were done and said there, which presumably will be long remembered. Uh, malicious and ill-chosen words can spread destruction quickly, and the words can't be taken back once they've, once they've been spoken. You can apologize later, I suppose, but it's hard to bring them back. So sometimes the stuff that comes out of our mouth surprises us. With the tongue, we can praise our God and Father, and with it, we can curse human beings who are made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this cannot be. That's what James said all those years ago. At times, our words are right and pleasing to God, but at other times, they're violent and destructive. And, and I guess we need to work out which one is closer to our real identity. But this proverb is very clear and gives us strong guidance. Keep your mouth free of perversity and keep corrupt talk from your lips because bitterness is such a corrosive emotion. So my aspiration is to be an encourager, um, which I try to be most of the time. Sometimes I'm not quite as good as I'd like to be, but I do try and work hard at being an encourager. And I just, by way of a personal disclaimer, I don't know whether God says to you sometimes, you are a hypocrite. You are a hypocrite. He says that to me. I write about these things, I speak about these things, and yet I let myself down I, I get so, so disappointed with myself sometimes. Fortunately, Judith didn't tell you what I can really be like. But sometimes it's not good, and I'm, I am sorry afterwards. But the thing that we sang about earlier is, here's the good news. I am a child of God. Amen. And I am forgiven. By Judith, when I need to be, but more importantly, by God. God has forgiven you, so much so that Jesus came and died for you, so that you'd be forgiven. How can you not feel forgiven when somebody gave their life for you? Anyway, let's move on to the eyes and things we choose to look at. When we gaze longingly at something, it captures our heart. The gaze leads to visualization, visualization leads to action. This principle is no more vividly exemplified than actually the conduct of Solomon's own father and mother. So we read in 2 Samuel 11, 2, 4, the first little bit. And just picture the scene. It's a warm, balmy evening. David's just had his cup of cocoa and he goes out. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. <coughs> from the roof, he saw a woman washing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. And then, as you know, David went on to compound the felony by contriving to have Bathsheba's husband killed in battle. A bit later on, though, God comes back in the shape of Nathan to rebuke David. And this is how the second passage goes. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he'd bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food. It was obviously a pet, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who'd come to him. 
David burned with anger when he heard this. And he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, that man must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the man. There was a popular song when I was in my heyday, when I was discotheking as a youth. <laughs> well, I don't know why you're laughing, Judith. Um, <laughs> It started with one look, just one look, that's all it took, just one look. So be careful what you look at. In biblical terms, the eyes are the window of the soul to the heart, and you don't want to fill your body with unhealthy food, you want to be having all those things that are going to build a healthy heart. So don't fill your your mind with dangerous images. I have told this tale before, but I I want to tell it again, because it had a powerful impact on me. When I was a very young an energetic and fit PE teacher. I took a, a 30 boys on a football tour to Holland and Belgium. And with me came the, my two colleagues, the head of department and the one that was second in charge. I was third in charge. Uh, so I carried the bags. Anyway, uh, we went off on this trip. And my head of department was a guy that I'll call Brian. Um, and Brian was a born-again Christian. He'd had a a, a very strong Christian experience and he was happy to tell everybody about it in, in the school that we worked in. The second guy that was second in charge who I'd met on my other teaching practice, uh, in biblical terms, he was a fornicator and a pornographer. He was quite good fun to be with, but he was a dissolute character in every form. Anyway, we got to this match early and we said to the boys, okay, you can have an hour, just wander around the town, kind of get yourself in the zone for the match and, and we'll just have a walk about. And I was, went off somewhere, I don't know, um, having a cup of tea and a ginger nut or something. I don't quite know what happened. Anyway, we get back to the bus an hour later. And when we get back to the bus, Chris is beside himself with excitement. I said, what's happened? And he said, you'll never guess. I saw Brian looking in a sex shop. And I took a photograph of him. So when I get back to school, I can put that all around the staff room. It'll be the laughing stock of the school. Fortunately, Brian got the photograph from him and he didn't put it round. But I guess that episode taught me, you really need to be careful what you look at. So it says in the uh, proverb, let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Apparently, uh, looking at pornography is rife in our society. The statistics are absolutely frightening. Paul Paul Thomas mentioned this a few weeks back and I looked up the statistics It says there's a very high proportion of people regularly look at pornography, many of whom are Christians, men and women, and regularly engage in looking at things they shouldn't be looking at. I also looked up um, a website for pastors that are in trouble, a support website, a confidential helpline thing, and they said that seven out of ten pastors who rang this Christian charity helpline regularly engaged in viewing pornography. I don't know whether you view pornography. If you do, I've got two words of advice for you. Stop it. So if the bird of temptation flies around your head, don't build a nest for it. Temptation comes in a variety of forms. It might not be pornography. It might be looking at members of the opposite sex. It might be looking at members of the same sex. Watching things on television, you know you should switch off. 
taking a trip to John Lewis, the cathedral of capitalism, and lusting after clothes, furniture, the latest technology, having motor car envy, (laughs) or back garden envy, or a grander house. Create your own list. None of those things are particularly great. So be careful what you look at, particularly what your eyes dwell on. If you've got a choice, which we have, then gaze on the splendour of God's creation. One of my favourite books is by Julia Cameron, the um, film director. And her book is called The Artist's Way. It's not a Christian book, but nevertheless it's a good book. And she says, every week, fill your mind with something positive. Go out and look at God's creation. Go to an art gallery. Go to a play. Go to some ballet. Go and watch Sunderland AFC. Now I'm hurt. (laughs) Anyway, uh, moving swiftly on. Be careful where you put your feet. We live in Hyde Heath, which is an idyllic place to live. Lots of nice people, wonderful neighbours, all that thing. Um, The problem is there's no streetlights and we've got lots of potholes in the pavement. So what you have to do is look where you're walking, really. Um... And carry a torch at night, that's another good idea. And it says, your word is a lamp to my feet. So the enemy will seek to create potholes for you. And here's the thing, the enemy's really good at all this stuff, and he knows what is your best pothole. He knows how he can trip you up. He knows where your points of vulnerability are. And he will not hesitate to, to use them. So look where you're walking. Earlier on in Proverbs 3, Solomon encourages us, saying, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Now, leaning suggests that you're resting your weight on something and expecting it to support you. And if I put my full weight on here, I'm not totally confident. It probably would be all right. But I guess it's wise to rest on God, If you're making strategic decisions, obviously you're going to use your brain. But I think taking things to God and and perhaps talking them over with other children of God is a good starting point. So I'm not suggesting we belittle the God-given ability that we have to reason and make decisions. I'm saying check them out. Speak to God. Speak to other people. And he will make your path straight for you. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify your God on the day he visits us. So Peter says, abstain from sinful desires as well as committing the sins. And that's a challenge for us, I guess, particularly in relation to the three major sins that I've had the privilege of preaching on before. Money, sex, and power. And when you start looking at those three things, it catapults us into the maelstrom of moral choice and the potential to choose the wrong path. Throughout history and our own personal experience, these issues have been inseparably intertwined. And you know that if you do the wrong things, it's going to lead you to disaster. So, to summarise, you can get into all sorts of difficulties if you're not looking where you're going. Watch out where you're going. There's another thing in Hyde Heath as well you have to be careful for, the dogs. 
who deposit things on the pavement. So that's another good reason to keep your eyes open. So look where you're going, keep your eyes open at all times. We had a family day yesterday at my son's, and I thought it was going to be a great day because he's got a big garden and uh, it was sunny and I thought, oh, it's going to be fabulous. And of course it was tanking down with rain. But anyway, <clears throat> one little story that's etched its way into the Suggett family history is I've got two daughters. Uh, Anna is two years older than Maria. And uh, the, they were at secondary school at the same time. And they used to come back on the train to Amersham and then walk down <coughs> Station Road together. And they're very different personalities. Uh, Anna is quite um, outgoing and says what she thinks and all that. And Maria is much more considered and quiet. And she's a psychiatrist now, so it's probably quite good for her to do that job. Anyway, picture the scene. They've had a little uh, contretemps on the train and they're walking down Station Road. And Anna's marching off in front like this because she was very good at marching, doing this very powerful marching and turning around every so often, saying something to Maria and march and then turning around. Anyway, she, <laughs> she did, you had to be there really, but she did it. And she was doing this turning around thing and crashed into a concrete telegraph pole, which of course... Fortunately, she didn't fall in the road, but it absolutely creased Maria up. And Anna had the good nature to laugh. And, of course, Maria told everybody, and we've talked about it for years ever since. So the moral of the tale is, look where you're going. Okay, I've got two questions for you. Is there some way in which you're failing to guard your heart now? Because it's, it's um, important. It's really, really important. And are there things that you're saying, seeing, or doing that may be moving your heart away from God? I don't know what your criterion is for, can I watch this television program? I think a good criterion used to be when my mum and dad were alive. Could I watch this program with my mum and dad? We had one of our granddaughters staying with us this week. Can I watch this TV program with my granddaughter there? And if the answer to that is no, then don't watch it. Pretend they're there, even if they're not. So two big questions. So by way of conclusion, which is always a good sign. You like that bit, don't you? By way of conclusion, here's the action required. This is what uh, it says in Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Stand firm then with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And I'm guessing the reason that we're told to have the breastplate of righteousness on is because our heart is a vital organ. So it's good to have it protected. And it's important that we have it in place all the time. I know people who say, the first thing I do in the morning when I'm praying is I put on the full armour of God before I face the day. And I think that's a very sensible manoeuvre. Our spiritual footwear keeps us on the right path and provides us with the readiness to share the good news. And the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit are obviously defensive and attacking at the same time. Because the enemy will attack you. There's no doubt about it, the enemy will attack you. So in order to guard your heart, make sure that your actions moving you towards God, not away from him. Put clear boundaries around the things that you shouldn't be doing and try and coordinate the activity of your mouth, your eyes and your feet.
And to summarise then, I was delighted when I found this slide, by the way. Don't you think that's a very wonderful slide? That's about guarding your heart. Be careful about what comes out of your mouth. There's no taking it back once it's out. Be careful what you look at and dwell on. And thirdly, be careful where you walk. Make sure you're looking where you're going. I wonder if you'd just close your eyes for a moment, please. As we were worshipping this morning, I think God gave me a picture. And um, I want you to imagine, in the stillness now, that you are, you've just run in a, a cross-country race, so one of those mudder things of where you get covered from head to toe in mud. So you're there in your kit, you're covered from head to toe in mud. And you get into one of these very elegant showers like we had in a hotel we stayed in last week that has jets coming from all sorts of places. And you're standing in this shower and as the water hits you, the mud just starts to fall away from your head all the way down your body, off your arms, off your torso, off your legs, off your feet, till you're standing there and you are completely, totally and utterly clean. That's how God wants you to feel. He wants you to feel completely, totally and utterly clean. So Lord, we ask that you'd help us to guard our hearts. Just as I don't want to eat the wrong food, take the wrong things into my body, Give us the wisdom and self-control not to allow toxic images or beliefs or anything that would trip us up to come into our hearts. Lord, we pray that you protect us, that you would help us to dress in the full armour of God each day. And we commit ourselves to your care. We thank you, Lord, that you died for us. We thank you, Lord, that you love us. We thank you, Lord, that you have our best Our best, our very, very best is what you desire for us, Lord. Amen. I'm going to ask Richard and the band to play very quietly in the background, just so that we can have a few moments to address things in our lives, um, speak to God. I think we're a bit thin on the ground for prayer ministry this morning.